Is it possible to cover genetic editing, religion, what makes us human, artificial intelligence, space travel, and ethics in a 30-minute conversation? Listen on to find out. Having a good idea doesn't get stuff. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. It's been a bit of a crazy past two weeks with moving out of the dorms on Santa Clara, moving into a house nearby campus, and starting an internship this summer. But I am happy to be back with you. Today's guest is Brian Green, not the famous American theoretical string physicist, but I can assure you this Brian Green is the next best thing. Brian Green is the Director of Technology Ethics at the Markala Center for Applied Ethics. What does that mean? His responsibilities include representing the Markala Center at the Partnership on Artificial Intelligence, and he speaks on artificial intelligence ethics as well as other topics in technology. He coordinates the center's partnership with the Tech Museum of Innovation in San Jose. He works with the Markala Center's Hackworth Grant Program. He works with the University Ethics Bull Team as well as the Markala Center's Environmental Ethics Fellows. And he teaches engineering ethics in the Graduate School of Engineering. As you can probably tell, Brian is a really smart guy, so I'll let him do the talking. Thanks for listening and enjoy the conversation. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Brian Green, and I would love to start out with an area of uh, common um, history, I guess. I spent my life since I was four growing up uh, in Davis, and you attended UC Davis around the time when I was born. So I was wondering, what were you uh, interested in during your time in college, and kind of what were your life plans when you were an undergraduate? So that's a great question. Thanks for asking, and thank you for having me on your podcast. It's exciting to be here. Um, When I went to Davis, I started there in 1996, and I finished up in 2000. Um, I thought for sure I was going to be a scientist. Um, Going into college, I started, and I thought specifically I was going to be a physicist, so I studied physics. Uh, I tried to take the advanced math series at UC Davis, discovered that I didn't actually like math very much, (laughs) and uh, continuing along... um, discovered, um, started, so I went into, moved away from physics, moved more towards biology, um, got involved in genetic anthropology at UC Davis, but also in plant biotechnology. And I figured they both had, I couldn't figure out which one to be, so I figured they both had DNA, so I majored in genetics, and that figuring that if I was in genetics, I could go either way that I wanted to. Then I worked on molecular biology laboratory work, um, was working on some of that stuff at UC Davis, and then I worked at Genentech for a summer, which pretty much proved to me that I hated laboratory work also, (laughs) which led to me graduating college and not knowing what to do with myself. But I I met my wife in college, so I knew that uh, we wanted to get married to each other. So we got married, and then we joined the Jesuit Volunteers International for two years. And we went overseas uh, to the Marshall Islands out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it was out there that I discovered that I like teaching, so that was that was good to discover. 
Um, and I also discovered that science and technology have social impact to them. So it's, uh, it's one thing to develop the technology or do the research and development of, of science and technology. Um, but the social impact side of it really struck me while I was out there because the Marshall Islands were used for nuclear testing after World War II. And now they're going underwater from climate change. So that really got me interested in the, the uh, social impact of technology. So uh, when we came back to the United States, I went to graduate school and kind of transitioned from being in genetics towards being in ethics. So I got a master's degree in ethics and social theory from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. And then I got a PhD uh, also in ethics and social theory, also from the GTU. Um, and then I started down here. Um, and I've been uh, I was teaching in the engineering school, ethics to engineers, basically. And then I became assistant director of campus ethics programs here at the Markula Center. Mm -hmm. And just in the last few months became the director of technology ethics. Mm -hmm. When you were in graduate school, how did religion and technology kind of like play off each other? So that's a great question. Um, when I did my master's degree, my master's degree was on the, uh, the Catholic perspective on genetic manipulation of humans. So, and after all that research, it turns out that the Catholic Church has a kind of a nuanced perspective on genetic manipulation of humans, which is that if you're doing it for therapeutic purposes, mm -hmm. the Catholic Church likes healthcare, it likes hospitals, you know, every, anything that helps people is good. Mm -hmm. Um, so the Catholic Church is in favor of genetic manipulation of humans if it is to alleviate some type of disease. Um, if it's just for enhancement or for messing around with people, then, you know, that's not cool because you're not helping people. It turned out, though, that at the end of this uh, master's degree that there is one particular sentence that caught my eye as being kind of the crux of the argument, which was that, and I believe it was Pope John Paul who said it, he said, any manipulation of humans will be judged by whether it promotes the natural development of the human person. So that gets into the idea of, of what is the natural development of a human person? How are we supposed to be developing? And so that really launched me on my PhD, looking into what is, what is human nature and what if we use technology to change human nature? And that's been a really interesting path for exploration. And not only in, in terms of genetics, that's really how I got into it, but in terms of there are a lot of things happening with brain-computer interfaces. Um, artificial intelligence is another perspective looking at it, um, although it's coming from a different way because we're not looking at human brains, then we're looking at um, artificial uh, type things which are analogous to humans in certain ways and how can they be similar to humans or not similar to humans. Mm -hmm. um, so I really found the, the religious perspective on things coming back to your original question. It's interesting from an ethical perspective, but it also really highlights that you can't come into questions of technology and ethics from a completely blank slate perspective. Everybody brings something to it. Different religions will have different perspectives, but even the secular perspective has different perspectives in it also. So um, it really, technology ethics really raises a lot of fundamental questions about what it means to be human. What's the nature of reality? Why are we here in this universe? And what's, you know, what's, what's our purpose here? What, what are we doing? What is the universe doing? Is the universe doing something? Um, if it's doing something, should we be helping it or should we be mm -hmm. trying to stop it from doing whatever it's doing? Mm -hmm. um, so all these really interesting questions that are much more metaphysical and 
big level questions and it depends on whatever your worldview is if if you come in on one side of it or come in on another side you could end up with vast vastly different approaches to how you think ethics is supposed to be operating down at, at the level that we're at right here hmm. do you think new technology whether that's ai or gene editing is changing what it means to be human like you touched on the natural right the natural order like does I don't, I don't know. Is our definition of what it means going to be human going to get going to change? It depends on what you're what you think humans are. <laughs> so this is this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, if you think that, for example, the that uh, what makes us humans is just our rational mind, then you might um, decide, oh, as long as we have rational minds, then we're humans. In which case, you can say, oh. A computer can be perfectly rational, so it's going to be human just like we are, or it's going to count as a person, or however you want to describe it as being the same as us. Or if you say something like it's our capacity for emotion that makes us human, then you'd say, oh, animals seem to have emotions also, so maybe we should count them. Um, And this is something that you see, for example, in utilitarianism. Utilitarian philosophy says that it's suffering that matters in terms of ethical consideration, which is why animals can count. But it's hard to understand how a computer could suffer. So does that mean that AI wouldn't count in in terms of utilitarian calculus? On the subject of artificial intelligence, I guess one fear that people have is that AI is going to take all our jobs, right? You know, truck drivers, Mm -hmm. one of the biggest jobs in the United States, and those are presumably all going to be gone fairly soon. So what are we, what are we going to do? Are we all going to work? Is should we be worried? (laughs) (laughs) So, so that's a good question. I'm not sure that the, the more I've been thinking about the autonomous cars question and whether all the drivers are going to be out of work, the less I've been concerned by it, because I think that that it might be possible to have these trucks or other vehicles driving around by themselves. I'm not sure that people are going to accept that very quickly. I think it's going to be a slow transition. There probably will be completely autonomous vehicles rolling around at some point. I think that that uh, is definitely on its way, but I don't think it's going to happen as fast as some people are saying. Some people are saying it's going to be uh, within five or ten years. I think that that maybe five years is the inside, but I think it's going to be a pretty long transition process because people just are not going to accept that vehicles don't have drivers in them, at least for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, or or there are going to be legal requirements that come in. For example, unions, through their negotiation with organizations, you can say, actually, you need to have an operator in the vehicle. Even if they're not doing anything, you, they still have to be sitting there. Um, or there could be government regulations that are similar to that. So that's a little bit on the unemployment question. Um, you think that's going to be true for other industries too, or like eventually, are we going to have less jobs? Or so I, I do think that unemployment is is a potential outcome. So for example, I heard that there was a law firm that laid off all their paralegal people who are involved in reading contracts. Why? Because they have an AI that reads their contracts now. And really, I mean, contracts are very formulaic, so it's something that's easy to get processed by machine learning. I think that there there are definitely some big changes that are going to happen. I think higher education is one place that's already uh, kind of experiencing this with online courses and massively open online courses and things like that. Mm-hmm. The, the traditional university is going to be shifting in the next few decades. I don't know if it's 5, 10, 20 years, how long it's going to be exactly. But um, there, there are definitely going to be shifts, and it, and AI will be involved in that because AI can make teaching more efficient. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, we've had adaptive testing for a long time. Uh, back when I took the GRE back in, I don't know, 2004 or something like that, they had already started doing adaptive testing back then. So adaptive testing has been around for a long time. Um, and it allows you to home in on, on what the score is very rapidly. Adaptive learning, I think, is kind of the next step. Um, and it's been taking longer to figure that out because it's a much more complex problem. But I think that AI can definitely help with adaptive learning. And it will be able to figure out, you know, based on those tests that it's giving you, exactly what you need to learn. And then it'll figure out based on other things about you, perhaps what's the easiest way to teach you something. So it, it should make learning much more efficient. And if it becomes really efficient, then traditional institutions like this university here or other universities are going to have to figure out a different way to make themselves distinct, hmm. which I think is something that Santa Clara has already done. Um, we're trying to make our distinct, ourselves distinct by having more internships and fellowships and, and opportunities like that for students that are really in-person, hands-on experiences. But if it's just a matter of learning, you know, calculus, then you can watch, you know, a video from from something online. Mm -hmm. Do you think with both artificial intelligence and then maybe bringing in like environmental ethics as well, do you think that the future world that you're kind of spending time thinking about and studying and wondering about is going to be better than our current world? Uh, so that's a good question. I, I think that what we're doing is we're creating a world that's more volatile. In other mm -hmm. words, there's more, more opportunities and much more risks at the same time. This is something that I think we've been able to see ever since um, globalization and technology have really, you know, taken off over and, and all and all driven driven by science and technology have been, you know, maybe for the last hundred years or so, maybe 150 or 200 years even, um, that we used to be a world where there were little groups of people in different places and they all kind of did their own thing separately from each other. But now we're all becoming one big planet together. And by doing that, we become much more powerful and therefore we're much more capable of doing really big good things and also really big bad things. Um, and of course, uh, the Cold War and all the nuclear weapons that were developed back then are kind of a prime example of how that's possible. And the fact that there are you know, still thousands and thousands of them around, uh, nuclear weapons, um, that they haven't been gotten rid of. And then we're adding to that inventory in terms of AI can be dangerous and robotics can be dangerous and synthetic biology can be dangerous and nanotechnology. And so you can keep adding these dangerous things to your list. All of them can provide a benefit, but all of them also have a risk along with them. Mm -hmm. So, and it really depends. Um, a lot of these technologies are very dual-use technologies, which means you can use them for something good or for something bad. Mm -hmm. So uh, AI is kind of a prime example of it, right? It's like human intelligence. Guess what? We can use human intelligence for good things or for bad things. And if we're taking that human intelligence and then we're putting it into an external product, then that external product is then imbued with its own you know, type of intelligence, which is either going to do good things or bad things. It's going to... It's, it can be, uh, it's a dual use. So the question is, how do we, is there a way that we can channel it towards the good uses and away from the bad uses? And that requires, guess what, functioning political systems, mm -hmm. you know, a culture where people can agree on things and talk to each other and have civil discourse and, and all sorts of uh, things like that, which, which hopefully we would be able to do, but which unfortunately right now are in a, a kind of a state where we're having more difficulty having, having good discussions on those things. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Another 
dangerous thing uh, that I kind of want to touch on is space travel. All right. Um, and um, so is it is it worth it for humans to travel to space, especially considering maybe what we're uh, what we're doing to our planet? I know sometimes Mars comes up as mm-hmm. like an alternative, a backup to our our hard drive of humanity. But kind of what 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 questions should we be asking when thinking about space travel? So I'm in favor of of human space travel. Um, one of my colleagues here, Margaret McLean, is opposed to it. She doesn't. She thinks. Uh, you know, if we're already messing up this planet, we shouldn't go mess up another one. But I take exactly the opposite perspective of it, which is that if we're messing up this planet, we better make sure there are a few people safe somewhere else <laughs> so that we don't all end up uh, dead in the same spot if something, you know, accidentally goes really wrong um, or intentionally if it's a war or something like that. Um, so, but it turns out that humans are not very well adapted to space. Um, even the the uh, astronauts who went to the moon seem to have had residual health problems from that in terms of, I think, uh, most of them had died from from uh, a heart condition or some type of uh, heart ailment, which was probably related to the radiation that they received during the you know few days that they were in space over in the moon. Space travel, I think, is really important, but it's going to be difficult to figure out how to do it in a way that humans can actually handle it. And so when... You know, I'm very excited about Elon Musk and SpaceX and all those other uh, kind of organizations that are trying to get people out there on the moon or, or to Mars. But I think that they're uh, perhaps as a marketing gimmick, <laughs> they're, they're, they're making it seem easier than it is, but it's actually really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're going to be sending humans to Mars and yeah, in 10 years. I, I, I think that they'll have to solve the radiation question. And there's ways of, of, you know, you could maybe put a big magnetic field around your your spaceship or things like that. But that, you know, any, any type of shielding you put around your spaceship is going to be heavy. And that makes it more difficult to get where you're going. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take to get to the moon or Mars. I hope I hope that we can get there quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to see self-sustaining colonies on other, uh, you know, whether it's the moon or Mars or other places very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's going to take longer than we anticipate. Mm-hmm. So here, here at the Markle Center, what are some of the, uh, maybe what's an example of a notable project that you've done or really enjoyed or been one of your favorite kind of uh, experiences with the center? Oh, that's a great question. I, I've loved working with the Ethics Bowl team. I've loved working with the Environmental Ethics Fellows. That's on the kind of the student side of things. Um, things that are more outward oriented, I've enjoyed. Uh, the Markle Center joined the partnership on AI last year. And um, the partnership on AI is, is its corporations like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, DeepMind, IBM, and there's, I, I always miss somebody on the list. Um, and then a bunch of other organizations, a lot of them from civil society and some corporations who have gotten together to try to talk about the future of artificial intelligence. So I think that's something uh, exciting that the Markless Center is doing. Um, I, but I, going back to the Ethics Bowl, I think the Ethics Bowl team winning the national championship this mm. year is one of the most exciting things that's happened mm. recently. Um, and uh, going back to the Environmental Ethics Fellows again also, the Environmental Ethics Fellows have had some great projects over the past few years, which I've really appreciated working with the students mm-hmm. on. Hmm. What is the importance of studying 
ethics, I guess. Because if someone, if you're going to come to Santa Clara, you're going to you're going to be paying a lot of money for your right. degree, <laughs> right? And so, why why study ethics instead of maybe a more practical skill that leads more directly into you know a job? Like, uh, why not accounting or engineering or something? So I think like ethics is the most practical skill because ethics mm-hmm. is about decision making, mm-hmm. and decision making is going to help you in everything that you do. So. No matter what you're doing in life, even if you, even if you're just working at, you know, raising a family in your own, in your house or something, you know, like that, you still need to make decisions. And ethics is just a way to think about how to make good decisions. Um, one of the things that people have talked about in terms of technology ethics recently is that technology is making us very powerful, mm-hmm. and if we have artificial intelligence producing all these new ideas that we can do things with, and we have the power. Um, through other means or through the AI or, you know, what other, whatever ways we're developing all these choices that we can make, we have to figure out which choices are actually good. Mm-hmm. Just because we can do something because we're powerful or because we're very intelligent and clever doesn't mean that we should do them. So ethics mm-hmm. can hopefully look at those choices and say, these choices are not good. We're going to sweep them to the side. These choices are better over here and among all these good choices we should be homing in on you know perhaps this smaller group of of very good choices Mm -hmm. Um, and at the same time those bad choices that you swept off to the side somebody else might be trying to do something with those and you need to figure out some way to prevent those bad things from happening which might require more technology it might require political solutions Mm -hmm. or things like that but i think that ethics is it's something that's universally applicable it's something that we all have to we all have to make decisions all the time right we have to decide what am i going to eat for dinner what am, am i going to go to class tomorrow am i going to do my homework um, it's very it's very very practical so it's and there are some people out there who who think of ethics as being very remote and philosophical and theoretical but that's not what it's meant to be it's really meant to be how you're living your life down on the ground right now mm-hmm. or what are what are some of the projects i know you mentioned the the AI uh, partnership, but what are some of the other questions or areas that you're interested in looking more into in the in the next couple of years with the Marquis Center? Right, we're we are working with some Silicon Valley corporations in terms of ethics workshops and training for their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there have been some scandals happening, you know, out there in terms of of uh, how technology and tech corporations have been behaving. Those corporations, for example, they're getting their reputation damaged by having those bad things happen to them. There are other corporations that see that and think to themselves, okay, in order to avoid that happening, what, what, what kind of good choices can we make to prevent that from happening? So we actually are having a fair number of companies contact us asking us, hey, how can we create a more ethical uh, corporation or more ethical organization? And working with them is actually really exciting because they're doing cutting edge research and they're actually interested in trying to do it right and making sure that their products are being used in good ways and not in bad ways. Hmm. Mm-hmm. If a student was really interested in ethics or interested in the Markowitz Center, like how should they get involved? Great question. There are several programs for students. We have, for example, my environmental ethics fellows, like I was mentioning. So if, if students are interested in environmental ethics, then they should apply for the environmental ethics fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Hackworth fellows. The Hackworth fellows um, work with different uh, staff members around the center to work on a particular project each year. Mm-hmm. Um, we have business ethics interns 
who um, work with our business ethics program to go out there and and uh, often work in in Silicon Valley corporations, uh, working on business ethics problems there. We have healthcare interns, and the Hansel Fellowship. The Hansel Fellow is works with the healthcare ethics interns. I think helping to coordinate them. And the interns then go out into hospitals and other regional healthcare facilities to learn about the healthcare system. Um, we have student workers here, so there are some opportunities for student jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you can always come to our programs because we're putting on programs all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get involved in the Ethics Bowl team. So there are a lot of different ways to get involved um, with the Ethics Center. Mm-hmm. A lot of the topics we've discussed, like maybe space travel or gene editing or AI seem kind of like far out in the future, but are there any examples of like technologies or products that exist right now that you think are really interesting or that you've like personally used or Right. I mean, so, so that's, that's the thing is they're not far out in the future, right? Mm-hmm. AI is getting used all the time right now in terms of advertising algorithms. So for example, one of the things that, that, uh, companies do is they try to, uh, for example, if you're watching videos online, then it tries to autoplay the next video to show to you, right? And it, one of the things they discovered is that the, the machine learning algorithm that's in charge of choosing the next video to show you sometimes chooses a video that's slightly more extreme than the one before it. And by doing that, it slowly directs you down a path towards kind of the most extreme perspectives in that. Why is that? It's because it's more sticky. It keeps your eyeballs on it longer um, watching uh, videos on their platform. And people have said, well, that might not be the best way to do things. Why, why is it constantly directing people towards more extreme things? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it instead directed people towards the center, that would be more boring, right? And so you'd lose eyeballs. People wouldn't watch it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, at least you'd be keeping people focused on, or, you know, away from kind of like internet radicalization or extremism or things like that, try to mm-hmm. keep people more, maybe more towards civil discourse or other things with machine learning that are kind of interesting right now is the fact that um, some totalitarian regimes have figured out how to exploit it, exploit mm-hmm. uh, social media and media in general to try to promote their own agendas. And I think that uh, they're you know, people are trying to figure out how to stop that from happening. How do we control this and prevent um, our media from being manipulated in these ways? And they're trying to use machine learning algorithms and they're trying to use people who are content moderators to, to figure out where this stuff is happening from. And, of course, investigative journalism and, mm-hmm. and even government investigations. Um, but it turns out it's really complicated with all, with all these new technologies coming in. You know, when when the iPhone was being developed, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, when it was still an idea in, in, in somebody's head, nobody realized, oh, this could lead to our election, you know, being manipulated through social media, which hadn't really been invented yet, mm-hmm. um, you know, several years in the future. Um, so I think that one of the, one of the big things about technology is that it's just really unpredictable. We mm-hmm. can't figure out where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. With that more volatile future, are you still optimistic? And if so, why? <laughs> so this is a good question. I teach, I teach the way I teach my classes usually, um, at least I, I teach a class on climate change. And the first thing I do is in the first two weeks, I lay out all the bad things, right? And then for the last eight weeks, we look at all the good things that we can do to try to fix the problem. 
the question is, does it actually result in people being more optimistic at the end or, does, or is, is it too depressing? Um, I don't think we should we shouldn't look at the future pessimistically because that's just not the way to live your life, right? You have to live it optimistically. You have to believe that good is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be optimistic. And I think that there's good reason to be optimistic. I think that we have, we've reached kind of a turning point in the last year in terms of technology ethics that people have all of a sudden realized, oh, this is, this is important. And the fact that, that uh, the Markle Center is already working on this and people are coming to us, I think is, is kind of, uh, displays the interest in the in the in the in the turn of the tide that's happened. Um, I think there's a lot of optimism. I, I don't think that climate climate change is a problem, and we definitely need to do something about it. But it's a very slow problem. You know, the sea level rises just just a little bit each year, which is really bad, and it's going to send places underwater. But it's not going to end human civilization in like ten years or something mm-hmm. like that. It's something that's going to take decades or centuries. There are other things that are much faster that we have to worry about, like in terms of nuclear weapons or AI or mm-hmm. things like that. But I think that people hopefully are starting to realize that we can make a difference and we can prevent these bad things from happening. And there are people uh, people in the technology industry are aware of, aware of this. There are people in government. Um, there are people internationally who are working on these issues. Um, and we just need more awareness. We need more people working on it. We need more people who are confident that they can change the world and make it a better place. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'd love to wrap up with a couple shorter questions. All right. So first of all, uh, what is the favorite place that you've traveled? Oh, the, my favorite place that I've traveled? That's a hard one. I, I like traveling to lots of different places. I think Hawaii is always a big one. I, I, I love the Pacific Islands in general. I like the Marshall Islands. I was there for two years. Um, absolutely spectacular place, um, especially the outer islands and the Marshall Islands. Uh, there's a there's a place out there called Likiap and another uh, some other outer islands that we went to that were just beautiful in terms of of seeing the coral and the fish and all the animals that live in the sea. Hawaii also uh, places in Europe and, and places in the United States also. I really like Olympic National Park in Washington State mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, there's just so many things to see. Hmm. Do you have any book recommendations that you think college students should check out? Oh, that's another great question. I don't know if I can answer that one off the top of my head. Um, I, I can say that the, one of the most influential books that I've ever read is called The Imperative of, uh, Imperative of Responsibility by Hans Jonas, who's a mm-hmm. philosopher. Uh, he wrote the book in 1984, uh, the English edition of it at least, in 1984. It's hard to read, so if you're a college student and you read it, it's a, it's a hard read, but it's worth it. I read it three times. The first time I read it, I didn't understand it. The second time I read it, I understood it, um, but I couldn't really figure out what to do with it. And then the third time I read it, I read it, and I felt like I could argue with the ideas that were being said there. And I realized also that it was a book that completely changed Um, or it should completely change the human way of thinking about ethics and technology because it really said that in the past, technology had a very limited scope, which is just human-to-human interactions. But through technology, um, we've kind of expanded our ethical uh, um, decision-making power in time and space. So it's the whole planet now, or or if we're traveling into space, it's going to be including those places. Also, 
Um, and it's much more long-term in terms of, you know, plastic takes thousands of years to, to deal with, or if we drive a species extinct and it's extinct forever. So um, even just the first few pages of, of that book, The Imperative of Responsibility, um, is really transformative because the first thing he says is that, you know, all up until now, every ethical system has just been kind of limited in scope, but we need to think much, much bigger. Hmm. Mm-hmm. If you could give a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? <laughs> That's another hard one. You have hard questions. I mean, I think that the, the traditional ethical statements, just like, you know, be kind to each other, be, be, be thoughtful, be understanding, uh, don't limit who your moral circle is. In other words, think about other people as, you know, treat others as you want to be treated. You know, if, if we could just get people to work with, you know, the golden rule mm-hmm. as their rule for human interaction, then that would be great. Um, one of the interesting things about ethics is that, guess what, ethics has been around for a long time, and all those, all those, you know, basic ethical rules still apply. Um, the problem has always been trying to get people to actually do it. And mm-hmm. so the question is, how, how can we get everyone to, to cooperate and actually treat each other well? Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's, uh, that's something that we haven't been able to figure out. But I think that, that technology might actually give us the opportunity to be able to improve moral education, uh, improve communication, and, and hopefully build up a stronger ethical culture. And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? <laughs> um, let's see. Well, I had almost an ideal Saturday just recently. You know, get up, make pancakes in the morning. Kids, wife and kids, we're all, you know, we, we have a nice pancake breakfast. Uh, maybe we go on a hike in the mountains around here. Rest in the afternoon, maybe read some some books or something, and then... Uh, have a nice dinner and, I don't know, watch a movie or something, play a game. Who knows? Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. You can subscribe to Voices of Santa Clara on the iTunes podcast app. You can visit VoicesOfSantaClara.com for interview transcripts, and you can like the Facebook page. Special thanks to Miles Elliott for the music. Thank you for listening, and have a nice day. Thank you.